What's your story, Rudy? Why Why are you... And I know you just told me this in this long story, so give it as a short story, but what, what is the passion behind your activism for Israel? Uh, my story and my passion. I would say that my story began as a wandering Jew around the world. Um, my parents were both born in France, but their grandparents or their parents came from Morocco, Algeria, Poland, and Belgium. Um, but very early on, at a young age, I, I realized that it didn't really matter where I was born, where my parents were born, where my grandparents were born, where I grew up, where I lived in, where I traveled to, what passport I had. That by definition of being born by, uh, under my parents, that I was a Jew. And that to me, Jew did not mean I was part of this religion, because by definition of religion, you must believe in a God, deity, belief system. Um, for example, a Christian who doesn't believe in Jesus and is an atheist and not a Christian. A Muslim who doesn't believe in the Quran is an atheist and not a Muslim. Same with Buddhism or in any religion. Right. But in Judaism, even if you don't believe in God or in the Torah, which I personally do, you're still a Jew. So it's way greater than just a religion. It's really the portable suitcase version of an identity of a people that came out of Judea and that passed down that suitcase generation to generation and said, Shana Shalem. And within that suitcase, we packed in our values. Next year in Jerusalem, yeah. right? And we packed in our values, our culture, our identity, our language, our connection to a higher spiritual being, our, our, our customs, and we packed in everything. And that's really what Judaism is to me. Um, By the way, you know what I like to tell people? I like yeah. to say that the, the Jewish people were different than all the peoples and all the religions. We're not a religion per se, because we have three things that no one else has. We have a homeland, mm -hmm. we have our own language, and we have the cultural traditions. Right. So the cultural traditions what people call religion, but it's really only one-third of, of, of three things that make us a people, as opposed to religions that are really just a religion, they don't have the other two. Right, let me, let me give you an example. Like, take a Native American, for example. Okay, if an individual Native American, let's say that person is male, alright, and he doesn't necessarily believe in the moon god of the tribe, let's just say that they believe in some sort of moon god, right. does that make him no longer a Native American? Does he not have a culture, an identity, a language, a value, a connection to a land, a history? He still does. Right. And so with Jews, even if we don't believe in God or we do believe in God, we're still a nation, we're still a people. Right. And that's the difference between Native people and a religion. Right, right. And, and the beauty of what Rudy is talking about, his, um, about your story, is you're basically saying, and it, one, your father, correct me if I'm wrong, is from, is from father's family from Morocco, from Poland. Correct. Your mother's family from Morocco. Morocco. And you lived all around the world and you were always tagged, you're this Jew, you're that Jew, I'm, you're French, you're Algerian, you're, 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 you're American, depending on where you were. Right. And it made you realize, well, wait a second, I'm a Jew. That's it. I'm, I'm a Jew. Like all of us, we're all, we're all Jews regardless of where we, we were scattered to lived with our with with our grandparents great grandparents where they were taken when it all comes down to it we are Jews even though we were scattered and at different uh, from all over the place. we're called Jews because we come from a land called Judea right that's why we're called Jews yeah. correct correct all right great fascinating story and it's such an important lesson you had to live li you had to live it to as opposed to many of us that they never live it like I was the American Jew because I grew up in America and when I go to is when I moved to Israel as a young boy so even there Israelis called me what Amerikai, they're the American, right? So that, that's a, but again, you understand someone right here, Twitter calling us fake Jews. You don't know anything, we're not even going to pay attention to you. Um, 
So, but but the the other thing is, you you said that you were telling me a story of when you were seven years old that also had a really big impact on you. Are you able to share it now as sure. well? Um, growing up and moving in different places, meeting different people, I was always labeled something else. So, for example, growing up in Miami, I was the French Jew. Going back to France to visit family, I was the American Jew. Um, and quickly, I sort of developed this sort of identity crisis where I really wanted to get to the bottom of the question being asked, right. where are you from? Um, I had an experience at the age of seven, I would say it's my first real experience with anti-Semitism. I would always hear stories of my family members, of things that were going on, but it was always secondhand. Uh, at the age of seven, I took a trip with my mom and my younger brother in London. We got on the red tour bus, that is the tour of London. And as we got on the bus, the bus driver noticed my mom's shirt and it had Emmet on it. In Hebrew, word, in Hebrew, Hebrew word. that means uh, truth. Right. And as we got on the bus, he, he noticed my mom's shirt and he said, excuse me, is that written in English? And I was like, no, it's written in Hebrew, but that's the language of the Jewish people, that's what you're asking. And he proceeded to ask her, he's like, so are you guys Jews? And she's like, yeah, we're, we're Jews, what's the problem? And he's like, I don't want any Jews on my bus, you have to get off my bus. And at that moment, well, obviously he kicked us off the bus, um, and then we got him arrested later on. But at that moment, I realized that it didn't matter, again, where I was born, where I lived in, where I traveled in, where I resided in, what passport I had, that no matter where my parents were born, where my grandparents were born, that I was a Jew. And for me, that meant that's part of, like, I'm, I'm a Jew, not because of my tribe, because I'm from the tribe of Levi. I'm a Jew because the name of my country and people, when we left, was Judea and Judeans. And by that logic, if the name of the, my people and my country today is Israel, that makes me Israeli. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we say, Am Yisrael Chai, not Dat Yehudi Chai. And, you know, we, we're Israeli today, so that makes me Israeli as well. So right. that, that's kind of the logic that went on in my mind at a very young age. Obviously, it wasn't in one day, right. um, but it did evolve and it grew. And then from that moment on, when someone asked me where I was from, I tell them from Israel. And they would ask me, were you born there? I'd say no. I'd say, did you grow up there? I'd say no. And so how are you Israeli? And I was like, I'm the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. This is, these are my ancestors, not people from my religion. These are actually my ancestors. I'm the descendant of these people, and I'm the living continuation of that descent. Right, right. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. And the, uh, obviously, and for everyone who just joined, so and Jews are from Judea. That's why it's our homeland. And are the native people of the land. Now, how did you find Jewish students on Columbia accepting that message? Um, it's uh, not a problem. I think most Jews sort of know their history. I think they're, they're just afraid of sharing it. Um, there are many Jews who are that's, that's That's a very profound point. Yeah, I think most Jews, I mean, it is true that many Jews have no idea about their own history and their culture. And you find a lot of those Jews going to movements like JDP, the right. anti-Israel Jews. Um, but most Jews, know their history but they don't really feel connected to it or a sense of pride in it or really want to show the world who they are. We kind of like do Shabbat dinners, Sukkot and, and Pesach and all those things behind closed doors. We'll say Shana Yerushalayim but we won't say it on campus in front of everyone. We'll do these sort of ceremonies and that's kind of like what you see. Like you, you see the Chabads and the Hillels becoming the new Jewish shtetls where Jews are coming there not only to have a space where they can practice their Judaism but also the only space where they feel that they can be Jewish and proud. And I think that there's a use for a Chabad and a Hillel in a synagogue, but I don't think we should ever be afraid of who we are, or of exposing and showing the world who we are. Right. So, in terms of our connection to our native In terms our native of our homeland. identity, in terms of our mission statement, in terms of our purpose, in terms of who we are, right. in terms of all of it. Right. So, you know, for everyone who is unfamiliar, so Rudy is the founder of Students Supporting Israel, SSI, here on Columbia University. And um, and again, if you follow, if you're not following Rudy yet, follow him on Facebook. Follow SSI Columbia. They're doing fabulous and important work here on Columbia University. Um, just recently, you had a video where you exposed pink wash 
teaching, um, which we can get into, but how would you express your activities here on Columbia University? How, how is it going? Is it hard? Is there a lot of anti-Israel activity here? How, how are you and, and the other SSI students and Jewish population here dealing with the situation? Yeah, so Columbia is rated the number one most anti-Semitic and anti-Israel school. Even uh, more than Berkeley? It's rated more than Berkeley, but again, it's Whoa. not a, it's not a competition. Um, if Berkeley is number one, then let it be. Number let it be one. number one. Good. It, good, it really good, it really good. does not matter. But definitely, uh, Columbia University is one of the most anti-Israel schools in the United States. That's for sure. I've had a lot of experiences on different campuses. What we created here is a group that's apolitical, meaning we're not left-wing, right-wing, one state or two states. We're not only for Jews. We have many non-Jews within our group. In fact, 25% of our members are non-Jews. Really? We even have one of our board members who's Muslim from Iran. Wow. Um, so we're, we're not a group of only for Jewish students talking about Jewish accomplishments or Israeli accomplishments to make ourselves feel better. Our goal is threefold. The first is to empower the future Zionist community, meaning Jews and non-Jews who come to this campus who know a little bit about Israel want to know more. We have to make sure that we train them in order for them to be able to broadcast their message to the world, know how to stand up, know how to communicate. The second thing we do is we want to be the ones narrating the story of Israel. The same way you wouldn't want to hear about black rights from a KKK member, why are we hearing about Israel only from SJP? And the students, third, uh, students for Justice in Palestine, right. this is the group SJP. that's anti-Israel and that uses Palestinian suffering, cherry-picks it and takes it out of context as a tool to then destroy Israel's right to exist. Very nice. That's what they do. Um, and then our third goal is really to change the whole dynamics on campus and allow a movement of coexistence. What we mean by that is that right now there are many people that are pro-Palestinian, which they should be. Palestinian people are human beings and they should have equal human rights wherever they live, whether it's a one state, two state, or three state. But what we see a lot is people associate being pro-Palestinian with being anti-Israel. And that's a polarization that we want to completely disconnect. We want to show students that you can be pro-Palestinian, giving them rights, giving them self-determination and whatever that means. But that doesn't mean you also have to be against Israel's right to exist. And, and that's kind of the third point where we want to break the stigmatization on campus. Very interesting. And how successful do you think you've been over the years that you've been here? Um, so I'll give you uh, two examples. First of all, we're 800 students today on campus, uh, strong. Um, secondly, if you look at SJP, the anti-Israel movement's activity, the first event that I went to two years ago, they had such a long line down the stairs and going outside that they had to host another event two days later to fit everyone who couldn't make it in. They had the pinkwashing event, which was their last event, and you can see in the video there were maybe like 15, 16, 17 people in this room, and we were eight people in the room. So, uh... Wow. Wow. So you're... So you are really seeing a change in the dynamic while you've been here. And again, thanks... ...SSI has been leading in trying to change the dynamic, as you were just explaining before. I think the, the reason and the fuel for, for the anti-Israel movement's success is the fact that they've used intersectionality as a way to align themselves with other minority movements and get them to hate Israel. Now what I mean by that is intersectionality is this idea that uh, struggles are, are common and united and you know for example women and black people and Native Americans have like a common fabric within their struggles and they can unite to fight against that. Which is true. Um, but the way that they're using intersectionality is that uh, the anti-Israel students are going to, for example, the black students on campus and telling them, hey, black students, you suffer from police brutality, which is real. Um, we suffer from idea of brutality. Let's make friends and hate Israel. Hey, Native American students, some white colonialists from Europe came and took your land. Well, the Jews are a bunch of made-up white people from, from Europe who came and took away our land, so let's be friends and hate Israel. Hey, LGBTQ, you feel oppressed in society? Well, we feel oppressed in society too. Let's hate Israel. And they've gone to every single minority group on campuses, not only at Columbia, 
but on an international right, level. Right. And they've made these alliances with them, not on the basis of shared struggle and, and, and fighting and achieving something, but on the basis of you must also hate Israel if you want to be a part of this new cool club. And what that results is a bunch of Jewish students and non-Jewish students coming to campus who want to advocate for black rights, which they should, who want to advocate for Muslim rights and for women rights and for gay rights and for Native American rights. And then all of a sudden they're told, if you want to do that, you must also hate Israel. And that's where you see the flipping of students that come not really caring or knowing so much to taking a stance against Israel's right to exist, not even criticizing Israel or trying to help Palestinians achieve some sort of you know, solution. They're just here to destroy Israel's right to exist right. in general. Right. Um, and so that's kind of the, the tool that the anti-Israel movement has used. And it's very sad, I know we've mentioned this before, because anyone who really believes in rights for anyone, the only country in the Middle East that gives everyone rights, LGBT, women, minorities, Muslims, freedom of equality, freedom of religion, is Israel. So by all these minorities joining up uh, in the anti-Israel camp, they are in a sense coming out against this, the very essential values they say they believe in. And yet, they allow themselves to do that without really questioning and coming down to understanding reality. And then we have reality. to go even a little bit deeper in there. Um, it's not only about what Israel does, it's also about what Palestinians are going through. It is a reality that Palestinians are suffering today, right? There are certain areas where they're controlled by Israel as a military and don't have right and access to government or representation. That's a real issue. However, these are the consequences of several wars waged against Israel in an attempt to destroy it. So you cannot blame the consequences of all those wars on Israel. The same way if you had an individual who was attacked and he knows how to defend himself or she knows how to defend herself and she sends the attacker to the hospital, you cannot blame her for defending herself. And so it is true that Palestinians have experienced injustices and it is true that Palestinians still do experience injustices today. And I very much so want to break the status quo and want to change that and want to find a solution. However, let's not use the genuine suffering of Palestinians when you can use it in order to destroy Israel's right to exist. And furthermore, when you're talking about Palestinians, be genuine about it. When you're talking about Palestinians, you should also mention that there are thousands of Palestinians dying in the Syrian civil war, that there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in refugee camps in Lebanon, in Syria, in Jordan, that there are Palestinians suffering on the border of Gaza and Egypt. Right. It just so happens that these movements don't care about those Palestinians because they don't have to do with Israel. Right. So in reality, what they're doing is using the legitimate suffering of the Palestinians as a tool to destroy Israel. Right, right. Well, all right. So what are your next steps? I hear that you are, can I say it? Is it a public? Sure. That you are stepping down in terms of leading SSI here on Columbia University. Uh, again, two years you set it up? Two years ago? Yeah. I came two in years as a ago. Student. Two years ago. And again, you could say that um, you've definitely been successful, you and everyone working with you. Again, I don't know the powers that be, but I'm sure we have people who you've been working together with to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now what's the next step for you, Rudy? Yes. Yes, you someone else taking over on Columbia University. You're a senior. You'll be graduating. Now what? Well, first of all, I graduate in May, and I wanted to make sure that for my last semester before I leave, I allow a transition process to have someone Smart. else come in and make sure that this continues because this is just the start of it. And the goal of Columbia University as a size is not only to impact Columbia, but really to impact the world. What we saw is we become a sort of flagship chapter for the SSI movement, where the events and the narrative and the language that we use here is then reproduced on other campuses, Great from job. Berkeley to UCLA to Arizona to Florida. To and, and you've and seen it grow? You've seen it on other we campuses around the world? Absolutely, I've seen it grow, and I'm very optimistic as to the continuation of this movement. Um, I think uh, we're seeing a totally different 
rise of, uh, of activism from the younger generations. And it's not activism that we sort of talk about cherry tomatoes, waste technology, okay. and all of these uh, excuses really for why we have Israel to exist. Right. Um, we're starting to talk about our own story, and, and not only a story in terms of accomplishments, and a story in terms of, of justice. Right. And, and that's really the key of, of, of reaching to the next generation. Um, what's going to happen for me is, first of all, my goal is to build a family, be successful. Um, is there anyone there in your future already? Or, uh... Well, hopefully I'll meet here soon. Okay, okay. So all potential women out there? Uh, He's yeah. looking. Yes. Um, so my goal as of right now is I graduate in May. Then I have reserves in the Army over the summer, which I go to every summer. Um, then I'm going to take a six-month break come on. to do a research project in South America. So I'll be backpacking throughout South America doing a research project on the Jewish communities. And the idea is to create a sort of uh, incentive program that allows Jews to move to Israel for greater reasons than just ideological ones. Um, so giving Jews the opportunity to move to Israel and to become successful rather than just come for Zionist reasons. Um, Interesting. Not, why, yeah. why that? Um, because, you know, not everyone's like me that will leave high school and join the army at the age of 17 and uh, want to move back to Israel. Uh, most people love Israel, but they love it as a sort of vacation to go to, or it's not really ideal because they're so rooted and stuck here. Um, and when you look at, for example, my mom's cousin, who has three kids and lives in France, and he has a master's degree in pharmaceuticals. If you look at Israel's pharmaceutical companies, it's really a monopoly. So there's no really way for him to get into any businesses there. Right. Furthermore, he doesn't really speak Hebrew, so that's going to be hard. And third of all, he has two businesses in France that he can't just leave because he has obviously you know, debt on them and he can't just pick up and leave. So I don't think we should be targeting uh, families that are already rooted and, and are sort of stuck in a certain area. I think we should be targeting people that are you know, in the transition of high school to college to post-college, right before they start really their jobs and making a family and being stuck. Um, so I want to target that generation and those group of people and give them the opportunity to come to Israel and make their lives in Israel. Wow, amazing. Uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to hear how that, how that develops. Definitely. Coming soon. Um, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer. I mean, I always talk to people who are planning on making Aliyah or they are making Aliyah. And um, uh, Aliyah is the word to, to move to Israel, and it's not it's not easy, it's it's not easy. Uh, but the bottom line, what I tell people is, listen, you gotta have two things to succeed in moving to Israel. One is you have to be flexible. There's something about Israeli society that um, uh, one it allows for flexibility. So many people change actually change their careers and, and and end up growing and developing in ways they would not have if they would have stayed in their host countries. It's just phenomenal, but you have to be open to that. Even if you have whatever degree, you know, mm -hmm. again, I'm an organizational psychologist and now I'm, mar I'm running an internet marketing company. If you would have told me that when I was working at the, one of the top four consulting firms here in Manhattan, I would have told you, you're crazy, no way. I want to be an employee. There's no way I'm going to have my own business. No way I'm going to do that. So there's this level of, uh, of flexibility and opportunity in Israel. Um, but the second thing I tell people is you have to want to be there a lot because it's not easy. So, so when it, it push comes to shove to overcome the cultural differences and the language and whatever hardships here and there. It's really decolonization because the cultural differences is just a, right. an injustice that you were raised in a culture that's not yours. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So, so that's something we already should be, I guess, and you're going to be doing already. Mm -hmm. So explaining that to all these uh, high school kids and college kids, exactly that, con that, that context. Because again, we, we are creating our own, our own culture, which is the beauty. Anyone who does move to Israel... We're a miracle. 
We're a miracle, and I, I like to explain it. We're an inspiration to the world. Any people out there who wants to be inspired or how to bring their own peoplehood to a higher level and get out of whatever bad situation they are, just look at the Jewish people. 2,000 years of exile and diaspora, and we're developing one of the best countries in the world and powerful on so many levels, not just militarily, but economically, technology, medical, medical. And whatever, 70 years ago, we were down and out. No one would have said anything, and that's after 2,000 years of, uh, of persecution in diaspora. You bring up a very important point, and the point that we often use here at SSI Columbia. Um, it's not only about inspiring other peoples, it's also about empowering them. I think the fact Good that point. Israel is the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever has taken place, ever. it comes to our responsibility to help other minorities. So when we look at like someone like Martin Luther King, yeah. right, who before one of his speeches before he was murdered, he said, I have seen the promised land. I may not get there, but eventually we will. That's quoting Moshe Rabbeinu and Hasidah. Yep. That's quoting Moses. Yep. And he saw the story of the Jewish people in Israel as a story for himself and their success in going to Zion as the success of him achieving rights in America. We look at Bob Marley, who would always sing about Zionism, and also his children sing about Zionism. Nice. There's Damien Marley that has a song called The Road to Zion. There's a right. song by Bob Marley called Zion Train. Right. And they're really singing about Zionism, not because they're returning to Jerusalem. For them, they're returning to Ethiopia. But they use the term that was successful for the Jewish people as a model to empower themselves. We look at the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is the leader of the Tibetan people. The story of Tibet was it's a country that was swallowed up by China, and many of the people were exiled out of out of Tibet and they're still oppressed and they're still not able to go back to their homeland and so the Dalai Lama once said we must learn from Jewish traditions in order to survive under hostile circumstances that's the Dalai Lama being a Zionist that's the Dalai Lama understanding that the Jewish people after everything that they went to after thousands of years and persecution and everything were able to return back to their homeland throw off the colonialist British and revive and liberate their homeland right. and so I think it's not only about inspiring the people it's about actually giving them the tools to achieve that justice as well Beautiful. I can't think of a better way to end this interview, Rudy. It's been a true pleasure to meet you. Keep up the amazing work you're doing, whether with SSI or when you end up going another direction, everything else you're doing. Looking forward to hearing uh, um, unbelievable things that you're going to be doing for Jewish people, for Israel, and for humanity. Keep it up, man. Everyone, thank you so much for watching. Shalom from Columbia University. Looking forward to seeing you from Israel. Pulse of Israel. Frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today. Folks, as you know, social media censorship is growing. The best way to support our video work for Israel is to subscribe to our video newsletter on pulseofisrael.com and to share our videos. If you are already a subscriber, then thank you.